Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Allison Janney studied at an acting school called the Neighborhood Playhouse. And I should mention here, right at the top, there's about to be some bleep swear words. Anyway, if that, if that bothers you, 60 seconds. We'll be back in 60 seconds. But anyway, Alice and Janney studied at the Neighborhood Playhouse, and they had sort of their own way of doing things. Uh, it's called the Meisner Technique. It was named after the great acting teacher, Sandy Meisner. So it's a whole system. It, it has its own structure and everything. The first year you did the repetition exercise, which was maddening and um, would always devolve into a into a battle of um, you, you, you back and forth. Um, <laughs> but it would start. Can I say that on national? Hey, no, of course um, you can't. Uh, okay, so uh, it would start with like I would look at you and say you're wearing a brown tie. And you would have to repeat everything I say. You wouldn't say you're wearing a brown tie. You say you would answer the question. You'd say I'm wearing a brown tie. So I say you're wearing a brown tie. You're, I'm wearing a brown tie. Yes, you're wearing a brown tie. Yes, I am wearing a brown tie. Yes, you are wearing a brown tie. I'm wearing a brown tie. You are wearing a brown tie. This is a brown tie. This That is a brown tie. This is a brown tie. That is a brown tie. It was all about listening and answering. That was the whole, I mean, the beginnings of the Meisner technique. That was like the pinch and the ouch. I mean, a little bit ridiculous, right? But she's got seven Emmys, so you tell her that. It's bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk to Allison Janney. She's on two different shows right now. Showtime's Masters of Sex and the CBS sitcom Mom. She earned an Emmy for her performance on the latter show earlier this year. On Mom, Jenny is outrageous and fun and ridiculous, and she says that's liberating. And the things she says, I still sometimes I go, really? I'm gonna. Say, is it okay that I say this? Seriously, you're gonna let me say this? I'll say a line. I'll go, here it goes, here it goes, and I say it, and the audience roars, and I'm like, okay. But first, I'll sit down with Ishmael Butler. He's in a hip-hop group called Shabazz Palaces. In the 90s, he led Diggable Planets. That group broke through big time with Rebirth of Slick, Cool Like That. I mean, it was just kind of like being in a, a whirlwind of realized fantasies, you know? We'll talk about the birth and death of Diggable Planets and about the incredibly awkward way they got their record deal. They showed up at a record executive's office and he told them to rap for him, a cappella, for 45 minutes. Plus, Michel Gondry talks about the song that changed his life. We'll hear about a couple of rock songs that you should listen to immediately. And I'll tell you about the last Hollywood picture that Orson Welles directed. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. Ishmael Butler's rap career started with a bang. His group Diggable Planets had a crossover hit with the rebirth of Slick, Cool Like That. It won them a Grammy in 1993. How was the buzz entire hip-hop era? Was fresh in fact since they started saying Audi? Cuz funks made fat from right beneath my hood. The pooba 
other styles like miles and ish. Like 60s funky worms with waves and perms. Just sending junky rhythms right down your block. We beat to rap, what key beat to lock, but I'm cool like that. 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 They were cast as a jazzy, non-threatening alternative to gangster rap, though they weren't that nuts about the role. Their second album was denser, and it replaced innuendo with explicitly revolutionary politics. Despite good reviews, it flopped, and Digwell Planets broke up not that long thereafter. Then, for 15 years or so, Butler was barely heard from. A band called Cherry Wine came and went in the early 2000s, There were a few feature performances, and uh, then a couple of years ago, he started a new group, a duo called Shabazz Palaces. A few free EPs led to a deal with the legendary indie label Sub Pop. Now they've put out four records in four years. Their latest is Les Majesty. I spoke to Ishmael Butler last year. Ishmael Butler, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. Good to be here, brother. I was happy to see that I felt like there was no way for me to start the interview without playing a little bit of Rebirth of Slick because it's your smash hit record that everybody knows, right? Mm-hmm. And I was worried that if I played it, you would get that kind of look that sometimes musicians get when you play their hit record. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Which is like, oh, I'm sick of this record. But you were right there with it. You were nodding your head to it. You were enjoying it. Yeah, no, I'm not sick of it at all. I play it every morning before I leave the house. That's not true. No, it's not, <laughs> it's not true. You're not going to sell me that one. <laughs> you grew up kind of going back and forth between Seattle and the East Coast, right? That's true. When you when you moved to New York as a young adult, why did you move there? To be in the rap game. New York is at that time was it's kind of like Mecca, you know, like that was the place that you kind of had to go in order to get on the map in a certain way. All the indie labels were there. Everything was happening there. So it seemed like the right thing to do for what, uh, try to fulfill my dream at that time. Tell me about what it was like to to be a guy that was mostly then from Seattle and just like show up in Brooklyn and be like, hey guys, my name's Ishmael. I'm from Seattle. I'm a rapper too. Yeah. Um... I don't know. I mean, looking back, I I guess it was daunting, but for me, every day was exciting, you know, and it was such a rich time. I I, I actually got a job working as a intern and kind of a gopher at this label called Sleeping Bag Records, which was like uh, Just Ice, EPMD, Steezo, um, guys like that. So I was just working in the mailroom, and at that time, like, if you wanted to send some contracts from... 43rd Street to some law offices on 59th, you would hand them to somebody and we'd either walk it up there or ride a bike. So I spent a lot of time out in the street going in and out of uh, independent record labels and law offices and stuff like that. And at night we would hit the parties and opening parties and record release parties. So, I mean, I was 18, 17 years old and it was just for me like being at, uh, you know, Disneyland or something. Let's listen to a little bit of Diggable Planets and Pacifics. Butterfly, searching for a relax, pulling from the jazz stacks cause it's Sunday. On the air is incense, sounds to the ceiling, trying to get this feeling since Monday. 
Looking out the window, watching all the people go. Bugging off a funny vibe, cause now it seems they're equal. Wonder what we train say, wonder what my pop say. Bugging off the calmness in the apple. Who me? I'm cooling in New York, I'm chilling in New York. The hoods is on my block, and the brothers at the court. The baseball hats is on, and the projects is calm. Dream time's extended, and highly recommended. But early birds like me's up, checking out the scene. The early worms jog, forget about your job. Just come dig the essence while the decadence is hidden. How did the three of you get signed? There's this cat. Well, there was this guy, Dennis Wheeler. He was A&R at Pendulum. Um, Pendulum was a subsidiary. That's when, like, all the majors would have these ind- independent subsidiaries. Was of a, uh, of Electra Records. So um, Dennis got a hold of our demo. We did this demo, and we also shot a, a film on uh, VHS. And so our demo package was a, a video, VHS video, with and it had the music on it and it had a tape in it. So we presented that to them. He thought it was cool. We we, we really went kind of all out at the time. And he dug it and he he presented it to his uh, president of his label, Ruben Rodriguez, who was like a Columbia A&R radio promotions old school cat. And he had got his own label deal through Electra. So he dug it too. So he brought us up to the office one day and... Um, we thought we were just going in for a meeting and a meeting and like kind of hobnob, but we were real bright eyed. We didn't know what to expect, so we got there and um, he just like made us perform in his office, you know, for like a performance though, like maybe forty minutes. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? So, we Wait, did. Were you just going a cappella? Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, he just wanted to see, first of all, how we responded to that request, obviously, but also you know, what kind of presence we had, you know. So we were kind of shook up after that, truth be told, and we didn't think that we fared well. But um, a couple weeks later, he said that he dug it and we were going to try to make us some some moves in terms of getting signed. But then we probably didn't get signed for another year and a half. Did you think at some point in that year and a half, this is is not going to work? Yes. Like when I say this is not going to work, not just diggable planets, or but the whole thing isn't going to work. Like I got to go to college or get a job. Yeah, for sure. Because I I left college, you know, so my parents were just like, "Come on, man, what are you doing?" You know, like, and at that time, you know, if you didn't have a record deal, you, there wasn't no do it yourself or put it up on YouTube or anything like that. I figured it wasn't going to work. Sure, but now that I look back on it, I must have had some. Maybe it was foolish, but some glimmers of hope and belief in the back of my mind because I kept pursuing it the whole time. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Ishmael Butler. He was a third of the Grammy-winning hip-hop group Diggable Planets in the 90s. These days, he's pushing the edges of hip-hop with Shabazz Palaces. Their latest album, released in 2014, is Les Majesty. When Rebirth of Slick became the like monstrous epic hit that it was, it was like... If I'm remembering correctly, like top 15 pop or something mm-hmm. like that. I think so. Um, what was it like to be in that world where you're like on MTV and like flying from place to place and making appearances at malls or whatever? Yeah, yeah. 
ah, man, I mean, everything you, I can think of saying sounds a little cliche. I mean, it was just kind of like being in a a whirlwind of realized fantasies, you know? Um, having so much energy and having so much, such a bright outlook, it seemed like um, just the, the ultimate gift being presented and laid out in front of us, you know? Like, I've always been wanderlust, you know, and exploratory and curious, so everything was right down my, my alley, you know, from traveling and going to different places and staying gone for the better portion of of a year. I was I was really in, in my element, so it was just magical, man. You know, I was uh, uh, like middle school age when that record came out, and um, I remember the way that it was portrayed, the sort of the story that was told about it. Um, and it was, as I alluded in my intro, about this dichotomy between gangster rap, which people were kind of freaking out over at the time, mm-hmm. and like, oh, these guys are like jazz guys. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you guys feel about that at the time? We we didn't we didn't rock with that at all. <laughs> we didn't rock with that at all. I guess that might be the case. Yeah, I mean, because we came from the time when like it would be like. When I came up, you go to a concert, it would be like the Fat Boys, uh, Houdini, uh, Super Lover C and Casanova Rug, Kumo D. Like, it hadn't got divided yet, you know? Like, we didn't perceive things as being different, you know, like that. Rap was rap. You had to have your own style. It had to represent your environment. It's the truth about who and what you were, like... There wasn't this notion that it, rap was one thing or that it, these categories hadn't really been developed yet. So we were kind of, when that started happening to us, we didn't we didn't really rock with that too tough at all. I mean, because all that stuff, N.W.A., Cypress Hill, like, we, we, we loved that, you know, and we related to it, and so we didn't really want that division. And we didn't really see it as authentic either. We understood it as marketing and... I guess a lot of that was why we understood it and let it slide to a certain extent as well. But, I mean, like you said, I mean, on uh, Blowout Cone, we just didn't want there to be any mistake on where we were coming from at the same time. You know? Let's take a listen to a track from Digable Planet's second album, Blowout Cone. Uh, my guest is Ishmael Butler, who was a third of Digable Planets and is half of Shabazz Palaces. Um, this song is called Ninth Wonder Blackitalism. I'm slicker this year, I'm slicker this year. Myrtle Ab, A train, got the pick in my head. And what, 16 joints later still lounge. Fresh from flowers in my bag, you get the best. Stylish tight boots, busted cameras, fatigues. 50,000 leagues of black. So we're chef, can we have a new slide? Player style, get a walk to the east, sun. Wow, Crookland, New York. Creamy kid, Joe Smith, and Wesson win the blessing. The angular slant blow spots bang. What are you giggling about? <laughs> I don't know. It's just funny. Like, I sound like so tiny, man, to myself, you know? <laughs> it has such a specific sound, that record. Mm-hmm. 
and it is coherent in a way that most, especially hip-hop records, but almost any LP isn't. Um, was that intentional? I hope so. I mean, everything for me at that time, I, I think, was like Sun Ra, um, um, Bitches Brew era, Miles, and Parliament. Yeah, we were thinking we were thinking like that. It's funny. I was giving clips to my producer Julia, and I told I messed up one of the titles of one of the songs, and I realized that as many times as I've listened to the record, like I didn't know any of the names of the songs, in part because it almost feels like one song never ends for another song to begin. Yeah. Um, I always like pe when people call a song whatever they remember about it rather than what the title is, you know? So, yeah, I mean... Is that why all your songs have such insanely complicated titles? <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> Because in the end, people will just be like, they'll come up with it. You and your friends, if you like a song, you always got a name for it that might not have anything to do with whatever the, t the artist wanted it to be. Let's hear uh, some of Diggable Planets and Dial 7, open parentheses, axioms of creamy spies, close parentheses. Like that, I seen her was the son of all man, tight black, gorilla fighter, super front. Bust, the beast may won the war in this summer. Thus, I rock my camouflage pair of corners. Seven cents kites by the ten hip hop. I strategize my joints, you know it don't stop. And it don't pop, son, it's project bound together. For beats and concrete when I'm creamy with my stiletto. Got 16 for the imperial fascists. Bomb beats, brothers, and honeys, we bust to set it. Domino theory, cause they stalled our food. I'll finish my conversation with Ishmael Butler after a break. I'll ask him the question that haunted 13-year-old me and 14-year-old me and 15-year-old me, 16-year-old me, etc., etc., etc. Why did Diggable Planets break up? Plus, director Michel Gondry will tell me about the song that changed his life. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Be honest, are you a music nerd? Or a fledgling music nerd who wishes they knew more about what's out there? The All Songs Considered podcast from NPR Music is here to help. All Songs Considered is NPR's music discussion and discovery podcast. Bob Boylan and Robin Hilton share the best of new and upcoming music, including the Carrie Brownstein We Never Knew, and a chat with Nico Case. Find lots of songs you'll fall in love with on All Songs Considered every Tuesday at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Udacity, an innovative online education provider. Udacity offers unrivaled learning opportunities for anyone starting or changing a career, upskilling to pursue advancement, or simply seeking personal betterment. Udacity develops cutting-edge courses in partnership with leading companies like Google, AT&T, and Facebook on everything from mastering web design to tech entrepreneurship. More at Udacity.com. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Ishmael Butler. He was a founding member of the Grammy Award-winning hip-hop group Diggable Planets. What broke up the group? Um, you know, I think... I don't think that 
man, it's just like we were 20, you know, 21, 22. Mecca was even younger. Like, in 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 in, in truth, in, in being candid, like a lot of the considerations by the label and management and stuff would would kind of fall to me because they understood me as being a catalyst or the creative force behind it. And those guys were talented and had their own ideas, you know, that with us being young and when you're young, just a lot of stuff is short lived anyway, you know, relationships with girlfriends or boyfriends like you, who knows who they was dating when they were that age, you know? So I don't think it was meant to be forever. So, you know, and plus we had done so much. We had a, a good sense of accomplishment and, we realized that, uh, you know, if, if it's over and it was short-lived, it wasn't like it wasn't fun and good and we had a rich time. So, yeah, a lot of people think it, maybe it was one thing or some blow-up thing, but I don't recall anything like that if it was. It just kind of faded away. Was there a day when everybody got together and said, look, guys, we're, this is settled? Yeah. We had a dinner with Ruben at a restaurant and we were all there and he was asking us, you know, if we were going to do something again because they were, they had moved to EMI. The uh, uh, blowout cone didn't really do that good. So we were really discussing whether or not we were even going to get the opportunity from the label to do something else, which I think they would have let us do. But, man, we hadn't seen each other. Me and Knowledge always stayed cool, but Mech was off on her own thing. We hadn't seen her for a while and she was just real aloof and not really there and she just I remember her saying you know he was like are y'all gonna pursue you know this music thing anymore and she was just like yeah we're gonna pursue it just individually you know so we were just like man okay I guess that's what it is let's hear some Shabazz palaces from their 2014 album Les Majesty this is called Ishmael Are all the sounds in Shabazz Palace's sounds that are either electronically generated or recorded instruments being played, or, or are they samples as well? Okay, you don't have to answer that question. <laughs> That's what that <laughs> smile means. <laughs> you need to check with your lawyer on this one. <laughs> no, there's no, there's no samples on here, man. No samples whatsoever, you know? <laughs> man. Now, we just do a lot of manipulation, man. So, yeah, that's how we get get our sound like that, man. Um, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on Bulls. It was such an honor to have you on the show. I appreciate it, man. This is a great thing that you got going, bro. This is real slick. Thank you. Ishmael Butler, half of the band Shabazz Palaces. 
This December, Diggable Planets will reunite for a special one-night performance at the Neptune Theater in Seattle. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. The French director Michel Gondry creates a certain kind of feeling in his movies. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, The Science of Sleep, his movie Moon Indigo, they all have it. You could say it's nostalgia, but Gondry actually has a better word, saudade. It's Portuguese. I just messed up the pronunciation. He's going to tell you about it. Anyway, as it turns out, there's a song that introduced him to this feeling. Well, I think the first time I heard this song was on the French TV uh, when I was probably about 10 or 12. It was one of those uh, easy listening shows where you have this, uh, what you call variété in French. And that's how we spend a lot of our uh, Saturday evenings uh, in the 70s. So it's sweet memories. So this time was, would have been Nino Ferrer. And he was doing this song that was just really beautiful. That's as well really sad. C'est un endroit qui ressemble à la Louisiane, à l'Italie. The song uh, speaks about a non-specific country. Uh, which is in the south where life is beautiful but it's going to end up in war and it's nothing anyone can do about it. But what was funny about it is like he would perform always with this girl around him who were like from the Caribs and she was topless. So as a kid, you could see a breast on TV and I think it made an impression on me. It was completely amazing to see at, uh, you know, 8 p.m. this naked woman dancing on the TV when you're a kid. So you say uh, things could last more than a million years and then forever in summer and then you have the sad piano melody comes back he had something eternal about it something that I think uh, in Brazilian they call that saudade it's this feeling that you have where you are happy and sad at the same time I think 
get melancholic uh, at a very young age. Even if when you're in a, a 10 or 12 year old, you remember when you were four and you have nostalgia about it. Do, 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 do. So it doesn't bother to write lyrics here. It's said enough already. It's already uh, engraved in your memory. But then the second chapter, uh, it's becoming very dark. I guess I'm a nostalgic person. And uh, I think I guess I like minor chords because uh, they make you melancholic. So it's a one of those days, it's going to be war, there's nothing you can do about it, and uh, it's how it is. Too bad for the South. It was still, it was good. We could have lived more than a million years. And always in summer. So it reflects the melancholy I had in me. Maybe I remember this song sometime when I make a movie. But you have to put that in the context of this beautiful lady dancing around with a naked breast. <laughs> Michel Gondry on the song that changed his life, Les Sud by Nino Ferrer. Gondry's newest film is a comedy called Microbe and Gasoline. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Beyond conversations with interesting people in culture, we like to tell you about interesting cultural stuff. There's so much stuff out there, you don't have the time to listen to everything. So we've brought someone onto the show to tell you about two albums that you can dive into right now without hesitation. Todd Martin of the Los Angeles Times. Great to have you on the show again. Welcome. Great to be here again. So let's talk about some cool kind of all-time secret favorites here. Sure. Uh, the first is an album called International Pop Overthrow from 1991. The band is Material Issue. Uh, we'll start by hearing a little bit of a song called Very First Lie. I'd like to wake up with you early in the morning or stay up late just playing records on your phonograph I'd like So tell me a little bit about why you picked this record. Um, well, that, that song, uh, that's probably responsible for all of my sort of romantic ideals and failings throughout life. Um, I, mean, I remember in, um, he was Jim Ellison, the leader of that band. There's a tragic end. He did commit suicide. But he was the first person I ever interviewed in 1994, 95, 94. And um, I was in high school. And I remember my coworker at the school paper rushed over the phone and was like, Jim, why are your songs so sad? And Jim's response was, I don't think they're sad. That's my life. And... Um, <laughs> 
but there, and but there's a sense of that in that even that little song, very first lie. You hear it's you know it's another song about romance, about girls, about dating. Um, but it's so optimistic in wanting to meet everyone, and then it's also like instantly pessimistic. And I want to tell you, I want to be the one who tells the very first lie. And it's just sort of, it, it's simple, it's direct, you know. But it, it seems to sort of, it's you know, deceptively simple. And then you, you ponder it and you start to think about it. And you know, there's a little bit of cynicism in it. And it's just that mixture of cynicism and idealism and, and pop that you know is so appealing. Can I ask you how old you were when you first heard this album? Um, I first heard uh, their later album, uh, Destination Universe. I was probably a 14, 15, and um, obsessing over a girl named Tammy, and it didn't go very well. Let's talk about your second pick. Um, this is an older album from Wilco, a band that's very well known. Uh, the album's called Summer Teeth. Let's take a listen to a little bit of a shot in the arm. Yes, So, Todd, here's the question. Sure. By picking a Wilco album, you have put yourself in danger of lapsing into rock and roll critic self-parody. <laughs> and I'm sure you're aware of that. So um, tell me about why this album is worth incurring that risk. Um, I'm totally aware of that, and I almost uh, hesitated to even suggest it because it was going to be sort of this standard rock critic band. But... Um, I can't lie, I listened to that particular song probably once a week since it uh, came out. There's all these sort of tags thrown at Wilco, whether it's, you know, dad rock or um, sort of this all-country sort of folky rock. Um, But, I mean, you listen to that song, and it's completely all over the map. People don't necessarily realize what a guitar-driven band Wilco is. That song is an explosion at the end of it. Um, You know, that band was completely defying everyone's expectations when that record came out. They had done pretty much just straight country rock records at that time, and then they come out with this record that's, you know, this electro-pop record that's, you know, very, very ornate. Um, These sort of Beatles-esque arrangements, these, you know, Krautrock arrangements sort of going all over the map, and couple that with, you know, Jeff Tweedy's lyrics, which, you know, are very evocative, you know, staring at the ashtray and you know, filling up over the night, and, you know, that song referencing um, various books and, you know, bloodier than blood, which is, you know, a very sort of poetic term, but at the same time using it in kind of a very aggressive way, and um, I'm trying to do my best to justify why uh, why people should listen to it, and hopefully I'm making some sort of sense. Well, uh, Todd, I think, it's a, I think it's a very eloquent recommendation. Um, Todd Martins recommends Wilco's Summer Teeth, as well as uh, International Pop Overthrow by the band Material Issue. You can find Todd's writing at the LA Times music blog Pop and Hiss. Always a pleasure, Todd. Thank you much. Sure, thank you.
Hey, gang, before we get into this, I just wanted to mention one thing. Uh, this is not an explicit interview or anything, but there is at one point a, an allusion to a, a sex act. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Allison Janney says that in her 20s, she was always getting cast as a 40-year-old. It makes sense because she's just kind of elegant. In fact, she was about 40 when she got the role that would make her career as the press secretary C.J. Craig on the West Wing. Janney won four Emmys for the part, which let her stretch her gifts. She was by turns sharp and warm, maternal and sexy. Now she works on two shows, Mom and Masters of Sex. On Mom, a sitcom on CBS, she plays a grandmother who's forced to move in with her daughter after an ill-spent life and a wild bender. On Masters of Sex, she's the conservative wife of a respected doctor and university administrator. In this scene, she's at the drive-in with him. She's figured out that he's been cheating on her, and he's told her that it's been with prostitutes. What she doesn't know is that the prostitutes were men. We didn't have drive-ins in our day. We didn't need them. We were married when we first slept together. We were of our time. That's not why we waited. Pardon I have spent the day racking my brains, pacing, wondering. Maybe I should light his clothes on fire. Maybe I should drive his car into the pool. Maybe I should tell him all about the man I've been seeing, who, by the way, wanted me in Mark, his bed, Margaret. though he didn't love me. I don't say this to punish you, although God knows you deserve to be punished. I mean, prostitutes? That is so insulting to me and will, so far I will, beneath I will you. never do it again, ever. I swear to you. Even if you never laid a hand on a hooker again, that wouldn't change what is so impossible to understand. This morning, when you came in my room, I was practically naked and you didn't look at my body once. Not once. And yet your face was filled with such love. I spoke with Allison Janney last year. Allison, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks, Jesse. I'm happy to be here. When you uh, got the script for Masters of Sex, was it already called Masters of Sex? Yes, the show name had already been uh, determined. I did not know. I had already. I knew at that point they wanted me to come on board. They had a character in mind. They hadn't written it yet, but she was going to be um, the wife of the provost, played by Bo Bridges. Something I was actually a little afraid to take on. And also, when they suggested or you know said they would be nudity most more than likely and I'd have to do a sex scene. And I was like, well, let's talk about that because uh, <laughs> I'm not sure that people really are going to want to see that, uh, you know, and they said, listen, it's going to be you are going to have to be completely comfortable with it and we will not do anything that you're not comfortable with. And, and I think had I not started on a crazy Pilates workout, not eating bread pasta routine, uh, not even knowing that this was going to come my way, I might not have, I don't know what I would have said, but I, fortunately I was in pretty good shape for for, for me, um, the best I'd been in a long time. So I thought, well, all right, I'm not going to be afraid. Let's do it. Let's do it. And, and, then, and then I got the first script and it was just, uh, and every script thereafter was just... 
I really looked forward to playing this character because of all the different layers that were going on with with her, and uh, it was one of the most rewarding I've played in a long time. After a break, Allison Janney talks about her work on Masters of Sex and the CBS sitcom Mom. Plus, I'll tell you about Orson Welles' last Hollywood movie, Touch of Evil. It's a noir that's as much about Welles himself as it is about a tired old detective. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Be honest, are you a music nerd? Or a fledgling music nerd who wishes they knew more about what's out there? The All Songs Considered podcast from NPR Music is here to help. All Songs Considered is NPR's music discussion and discovery podcast. Bob Boylan and Robin Hilton share the best of new and upcoming music, including the Carrie Brownstein We Never Knew and a chat with Nico Case. Find lots of songs you'll fall in love with on All Songs Considered every Tuesday at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. Hi, gang. It's Jesse. We're touring Bullseye this week. We just did a great show in Los Angeles. It was amazing. And depending on when you hear this, you might still be able to get tickets for a live taping in Boston on November 18th or Brooklyn on the 19th. Those shows have Mission of Burma and Barney Frank and Tavi Gevinson and David Cross, respectively. Check out BullseyeTour.com and we will see you there. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm speaking with Allison Janney. She can currently be seen on Masters of Sex on Showtime and the CBS sitcom Mom. It's so poignant to see... Um, middle age try and come to terms with stuff that people usually are called upon to come to terms with when they're 16 you know like to to basically like to, to like she has to like get to know her sexuality and she has to like realize yeah. what a realize what a relationship with someone is Margaret Scully, all through this, yeah, the the unraveling of her of someone's life and what they thought it was, and and everything the rug is just pulled out from under her, and as she slowly goes down this this journey, and and here is a it's this the silent um, taking in of information at the mahjong games with the girlfriends, and hearing about the sex study, and hearing about what sex feels like and gosh I don't feel that way and, and and trying to have my husband want me and he doesn't and then getting you know and then having falling into an affair like it's just the journey is just just so um, sad and and painful and so much going on especially since they really do there's this love they have for each other that is there they truly truly do love each other but, but watching her um, realize she's never even had an orgasm realize that he's sleeping with prostitutes. You know, I say this, and I I love my mother so much, but I just thought about her um, uh, being, you know, about that age, you know, and she was she was like twenty in the fifties. Being, she, I think she had just married my father in nineteen um, fifty six or fifty seven, and then started having I there were three kids: an older brother, me, and my younger brother. I just thought of her. Finding this stuff out, and my and my mother, so such a gracious woman, and so polite, and so concerned with manners, and just imagined her going into master's office and going through that sex study, you know, intake questionnaire thing, and it just became very easy for me to 
to to play her. She was definitely more like me than the character on um, on Mom. When you agreed to do Mom, was it a part that was um, uh, created for you, or was it something you had to audition for? I had to. I didn't have to audition. Well, they don't call it that when you know. But Did you have I to definitely. Test? Did you have to go knew. to go to lunch with some people? I went in just to have a, a chemistry meet and greet type thing with with Anna and you know in in Chuck's office. Anna Ferris, the other star of the show. Yes, um, she and Chuck were the ones who were on board with this with mom and um they then called me to come in and meet with them and and uh i was excited cuz chuck and i had tried to work together right after the west wing we had a development deal together and we were trying to to think of a show to develop for me and it didn't end up going and i was a little disappointed cuz I, I really liked working with chuck and um so i was excited to go in on this one and i went in and and i was a, really a big fan of anna's work and i'd just seen her in the house bunny and thought she was hysterical and really thought, i think i think we're going to get along fine i just had a feeling and and we did i was watching an episode of mom earlier today and the storylines that were happening I, i'll see if i can uh summarize them your your granddaughter's character is pregnant and uh, looks like she's having the baby, but she's giving it up for adoption. Your character's ex-husband has just reappeared for the first time in forever uh, in her, his daughter and granddaughter's life. Um, it's prom, uh, and the, uh, your gran- your character's granddaughter is trying to decide whether or not she's okay with going to prom pregnant. Mm-hmm. That sounds um, familiar. And you know, and the. And the baseline that's running through all of this is your character and your daughter's character dealing with recovery. Yeah. And meanwhile, every three seconds is a gut punch joke, you know, like a boom joke. And that's just a lot. (laughs) It's really – it's a really intense viewing experience. It is. You know, you're right. There is is a lot going on, a lot of different uh, levels and and, – and emotions and subject matters that aren't necessarily half-hour comedy uh, fare. But I, I don't know. I guess people seem to like it because we, we got asked back for season two, which is I mean, fantastic. It, what I think is interesting mm-hmm. is that I, I think on a lot of sitcoms that deal with quote-unquote serious topics, mm-hmm. there is a sort of modal slash tonal switch back and forth. So you get a little bit of, OK, we're going to deal with the topic now through this thoughtful, introspective scene. Yeah. Um, and on Mom, at least what I've seen, there are hard, what you, what you call hard jokes yeah. about every difficult subject yeah. that just go straight for it. <laughs> I, I, I think that's the only way to do it. it just hit it head on and, and not get sentimental or I think the audience is responding to that. They like They like that. You know, dealing with cancer and just, you know, Bonnie talking to Marjorie, played by um, uh, Mimi Kennedy, just, you know, straight on. Like, well, what are we going to do about the hair? We've got to get you a wig. got to do that. You know, just people like, well, I can't believe she's going right there. But um, we're not afraid to go right there. And I think people um, people like that. I know Chuck Glory uh, has, you know, has a past that informs this desire to want to do work about uh, about addiction and recovery. Was that something that you talked to him about when you first went in there to meet with him and, and Anna Ferris, like why he wanted to do this? I did not ask him why he wanted to 
it's a world that I um, was not afraid to um, play in. I, I have had a lot of friends and people close to me who have who I've tried to help get sober, and I've been to many Al-Anon meetings, many open AA meetings. I've unfortunately had to deal with it a, a, a lot, so I, I I feel like everyone these days is is dealing with recovery. Everybody. You know, and anything that we can do to destigmatize recovery and addiction is is a good thing. I know that I know that you lost your brother, sort of not long after, uh, not long after West Wing, a number of years ago now, but yeah. not that long ago. Yeah, three years ago. I wonder, and I know that that was also an issue for him. Uh, oh, yeah, it was a big issue. That was, I mean, I think it was because of him uh, losing him to addiction and um, alcoholism that I I wanted to play Bonnie. I just, I, I wanted to play a character who was dealing with that. And not that that would be, um, well, you know, not that it would be honoring him, but if somehow I could help someone out there by playing a character who was going through it and we put it out there and someone got felt better seeing what they were going through on TV and, and didn't feel so lonely or felt like, gosh, it feels good to have my life being put up on television, having people, in, you know, not that they're enjoying it, but to see it represented in a, in a, in a good way. I wanted to to do that. It also gave me the confidence to be in that world because I I was in it a lot, a lot. It must also be kind of, kind of liberating for you as a performer to get to be someone who's in recovery and like trying to be in that sober space, but also gets to be kind of outrageous and fun mm-hmm. and ridiculous and just like a happy next step version of that world. Yes. Uh, yeah. Gratefully, Bonnie is, um, yeah, she's a bull in a not that she's cup. Not that she's got everything under control. No, but. she does not. Uh, she is the most unlike me of, of almost any character I've ever played. And the things she says, I still sometimes I go, really? I'm going to say, is it okay that I say this? Seriously, you're going to let me say this, Chuck? Or I, like, and the things that do make it through, there are same, some things that don't ever make it to the to the television um, but program. But but the things that, that do, so I'm just like, all right. And I, that's what I do in front of the live audience. I'll say a line. I'll go, here it goes, here it goes. And I say it, and the audience roars. And I'm like, okay. Uh, you know, they like it. They, they, uh, they buy it. They like uh, as her being as outrageous as possible. Um, and it's a lot of fun getting to, to have an excuse to be obnoxious. <laughs> Well, Alison Janey, I sure appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was great to get to talk to you. I really have enjoyed talking with you, Jesse. Thank you for having me on. Alison Janney can be seen on two television programs, Masters of Sex, which is on Showtime right now, and Mom, which airs Thursday nights on CBS. Thank you, Alison. Thanks, Jesse. I love radio so much better than television. Every week, we like to close the show with a recommendation from yours truly. It's the outshot. There's an amazing shot in Touch of Evil. The movie's a noir, the last thing Hollywood let Orson Welles direct. He plays a cop in a border town, a crooked one. This Mexican detective's onto him, coming after him. We see the detective in this little mirror on the wall of a brothel where Welles is holed up. Anyway, this shot. You see Welles from just below 
against the crumbling adobe wall. He was already getting big then. This is the late 50s, but he was also padded out. He looks huge. He's in the bottom right-hand corner of the frame, breathing these big, heavy breaths. He's drunk, just fallen off the wagon. His tie's misplaced. His beard has grown in. And there in the center of the shot is this bullfighting trophy, a huge bull's head framed by the swords that killed it. Touch of Evil is a story about a great bull, honorable in his own way, but savage and terrifying too. A bull getting stuck again and again and fighting through until he can't anymore. Hank, I've been looking for you in every bar in town. I've been in half of them, only here on the wrong side of the border. I never drink on my own beat. Bartender, give him some black coffee, quick. I don't need He's black coffee. The meeting? Vargas at his hotel. The Mexican detective, who, by the way, is played by Charlton Heston, with a little bit of makeup and almost no accent, is the good guy. We can see that. But with Wells, it's a little harder to tell. Come in, Hank. Well, I don't know whether I'm welcome or not. I want you to hear this. Uh, I've heard it already. Our friend Vargas has some very special ideas about police procedure. He seems to think it don't matter whether a killer's hanged or not, so long as we obey the fine well, print. Rule I don't think a policeman should work like a dog catcher. No. Putting criminals behind bars? No. In any free country, a policeman uh, is supposed to enforce the law, and the law protects the guilty as well as the innocent. Our job is tough enough. It's supposed to be. It has to be tough. A policeman's job is only easy in a police state. That's the whole point, Captain. Who is the boss, the cop or the law? Citizen Kane was Wells' first movie. It changed film forever, but it also launched 45 years of pain for Wells. There were a few successes, but mostly there were decades and decades of failed projects, meddling financiers, and would've, could've, and should've beens. Wells was a great artist, but, you know... The whole thing was his own damn fault, too. Because he was a bull. Even in 1958, when Touch of Evil came out, he was a bull, careening through the world of film, destroying movies, trampling relationships out of anger and hurt, bolting out of the gate and getting stuck through over and over again till he just collapsed under his own weight. Toward the end of Touch of Evil, Wells is tired. He's lost his cane. He needs it to walk because he once took a bullet for a friend. And he's back in that brothel, trying to get the madam, Marlena Dietrich, to read his fortune. He wants to know if maybe, just maybe, he can pull this one out. What's my fortune? You've been reading the cards, haven't you? I've been doing the accounts. Come on, read my future for me. You haven't got any. Hmm? What do you mean? Your future is all used up. Why don't you go home? Well's old gamey leg gives him an intuition. That's what they say in the movie anyway. And he follows the pain. It hurts when he's on to something. 
like a trick knee when a storm's coming. And he follows the pain, for good or ill, or for good by way of ill. Maybe the real Wells let his pain lead him too far. I don't know. I'm not a great artist, and Wells was. Maybe Dietrich has it pegged. He was some kind of a man. What does it matter what you say about people? Goodbye, Tanner. Adios. That's my answer. Well, that's the end of another episode of Bullseye. The show's produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Production fellow at Maximum Fun is Avarian X. Perello. Senior producer, Colin Anderson. All our interstitial music provided to us by Dan Wally. Thanks to the Go Team and their label Memphis Industries for our theme music. Thanks this week to Neil Rauch at NPR New York for engineering help. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, they are all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And if this is not enough, cool culture for you. Well, I've got great news. You can check out our sister show, Pop Rocket. It's a roundtable discussion of everything great in popular culture, hosted by the hilarious comedian Guy Branham. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 